All right. Brother Rick, after your hip surgeries, good to see you back in the house. Can we all welcome Rick, Rick back? Amen. You know Rick's good when he's when you find him back out on the shooting range. You know he's just he's just fine. Let's see how my hip works with this. So, if you're uh, visiting here today, my name is John. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at the Gathering Place Church. There's a guest card in your bulletin. If you'd like to fill that out, we'd love to have a record of your visit, get to know you a little bit, put down any prayer needs you may have, because we love to pray and we see answers to prayer. I wanna, my wife and I and my family would like to say a big thank you to the uh, wave of love, waves of love that we have experienced as we have been going through uh, a very deep trial as a family. And uh, the response of this body to our family has been overwhelming. We have never eaten so good. And there's like a food competition going on, which we are the recipients of, the victims of who can cook the best. And uh, to drive it all the way up to Ramona to make sure my family of nine and ten with my mom visit. My mom, mom, can you stand? My mother is in the house today. Can you welcome my mom? And uh, to make sure a family of 10 is fed well uh, up in the mountain region is no small feat. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, so as some of you may or may not know, uh, my wife was diagnosed with uh, um, invasive carcinoma, breast cancer, uh, very rapid. And um, so we prayed uh, fervently, expectantly uh, for a, a instantaneous miracle which we see in our church um, often. And uh, it's very difficult for sick people to be in a charismatic church because you see people getting healed, but you're not. So what do you do? What do you do in that situation? I'm preaching today. I would much rather pastor an alive church than a dead church. You can just go on. Just go ahead and shout it out whenever you need to. What do you do, though? Oh, you're going to do? Oh, okay. You thought that was an invitation. This is a very, very important message for all of us. And it's important, I believe, for you to hear it from me because... Uh, There's nobody in this body that champions the supernatural more than me because it's part of our calling. And uh, I tried not to have a church that embraced the supernatural early on, and the Lord rebuked me just for, for different reasons. He rebuked me. He said, you have no right to regulate my spirit in my own church. And so we raised the bar to what we believe is the biblical standard. What some uh, wonderful brothers and sisters do, and I mean that, wonderful, is they lower the bar of expectations of of prayer so that they can live with less disappointment. I get that. It's a real temptation. See, if I'm believing for an instantaneous miracle for my wife and we don't get it, I don't get it, then you have to deal with a whole, whole, uh, a, a huge measure of disappointment. And some people are not willing to do that. So I am, and I threw myself into that. Many of you have done the same thing. Many of you have prayed for uncles and aunts and grandmas and grandpas and brothers and sisters and children, parents. Many of you have prayed for financial, relational, physical, spiritual things that just did not happen. What do you do? So after, uh, about a week after, see, when I was in the pre-op, I, you know, I've, just like many of you, I've prayed for things and I've known that I've had them by faith. I just know it. Everybody else thinks you're ridiculous. They think you're being extreme. They think you're being hype. And then the miracle happens and everybody's like, wow. And you're like, yeah, I told you. Okay. So 
I've done that. Many of you have done that. You know what that's like. I thought I had that this time. And I'm in the pre-op and I'm expecting the, uh, the nurse to come out and say, we don't know what happened, but it wasn't there. When they came out and said, okay, we're ready for the operation, it shocked me, honestly. It kind of stunned me a little bit. And so then seeing her having to go through the operation and then seeing her having to go through a second operation um, and now heading toward chemo, it was very dis- dis- disconcerting to say the least. Very disappointing. Uh, the sadness came over both of us and our family, of course. Um, and you go through a process of grieving, grieving the loss of answered prayer, grieving the loss of whatever you're losing physically or spiritually or emotionally. You grieve the loss after a divorce. You go through the stages of grief, which is shock. Then there is uh, denial. This isn't happening. Nothing's going to change. My life's going to just be the same. This isn't going to beat me. Then you come to the place of anger, and then hopefully you come to the place of acceptance or depression and acceptance, and then you move on. And so that acceptance piece is very critical. So being that, and this is what what I want to teach into, being that I was uh, all in and it didn't happen, and I'm thinking, my kids are watching, you know, I want them to see God heal their mom, right? right? I want them to see that. I want them to see how awesome God is, and it didn't happen. I'm thinking, I want our church to have a phenomenal testimony we can celebrate. I don't want to see my wife have to go through this. No husband would. I want those in our city, the city leaders that I'm in relationship with that are not believers, I want them to see something they've never seen before. How would that add such credibility to our message, which the Bible says that. I will confirm the word with signs following. And I put myself out there, and I told them, you know, this can happen. So it didn't happen. So all of that loss is, is real. So what do you do? I want to give you four things today that you do when you don't get a miracle. Number one, you guys ready? Number one, don't blame God. Whew, I mean, Satan is like right here, just hoping that you do that. Because if you blame God, oh, he will fill that, he'll fill that void. He will fill that void with doubt and confusion and anger and hatred and despondency. And he will, he will widen that gap and speak lies to you about God. And what happens is you begin to get more and more distant from God. You may not run and become an atheist, but in your heart you can flatline. That is exactly what the enemy wants. That's exactly what he is hoping you do is begin to just separate yourself from God and decide prayer doesn't work. I'm I'm really starting to doubt whether God even exists. Oh, Satan loves that. God's big enough to handle that, but I'm telling you, it's a journey you just don't want to go on. My mother was telling me this morning we were having a talk where, you know, uh, when, and I asked her permission to share this, you know, family of six, and uh, when... The divorce happened. She was disillusioned because she she had these little just these six little kids. I was nine years old, you know, and uh, was the youngest of six. And she's praying, "Your kingdom come, your will be done." But when you have an abusive, alcoholic husband, uh, you know, you, you, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a house of strife and and pain and frustration. You're praying your brains out, and you're expecting God to invade that situation, and you just imagine your husband and your wife falling on their knees and repenting before God, and, the, and your whole family is just healed, and you have you know, heaven on earth, and my dream is realized. And when it's shattered, you have lots of questions. And so she told me this morning that what happened was in her heart, she had, and she was a dedicated believer. 
in her heart, she had decided, she had come to the place where she's like, I'm just going to put God down for a little while. And as she did that, she began to float away from her faith until she came to a place where she didn't really believe there was a God. Or he's really just some kind of, it's kind of some kind of energy force out there. Because that's a much safer place to live than in a relationship with a living God who disappointed you. So she had come to a place where she had decided in her heart and mind, and maybe some of you have, or some listening to this online have, come to the place where you've decided that there's, maybe there is some God, I don't know who he is or what he's like, but he's way out there, he doesn't care about us, he's doing his own thing, and he certainly is not a personal God. She had come to the place where she decided, if there is a true God, he certainly isn't personal. How could that even be possible? That God, if he did create all this, sling these galaxies into existence, I mean, how in the world could this God also know me personally? And I've had a personal experience that proves that he doesn't care and he doesn't intervene when I need him the most. And that's where she was living. She had never uttered those words out of her mouth to another human being. They were just rolling around inside her heart and mind for two years. And then she was sitting in a restaurant waiting for her table. And she was talking to somebody next to her. They just struck up a conversation. And as they're talking, she gets tapped on her shoulder. And she turns and, and this guy stands there with a drink in his hand. And says, I have a message for you. She's like, uh, I'm not sure I want a message from you. Okay. He said, God is a personal God and he's, and he loves you. Is that that right? He He loves you very much. God is a personal God and he loves you very much. And she's thinking that he's just some religious nut. He, she said he has no idea that he just hit the mother load. No pun intended. He just hit the core of her doubt in God. And he said, I know I have a drink in my hand. He goes, but I'm telling you, this is a message from God. She said, what was that message again? She wanted to test him and see if it came out the same or if he's going to elaborate into some weird stuff. And he said, God is a personal God and he loves you very much. She thought, I wonder what my friend is thinking at this moment. So she turns and he was gone. She turned back and he was gone. And that moment got her back on track. Which brings me to the second point. Do not do the first point, which is to blame God. Because that will drive you far away from the only one who can help you. So what do I do then? Trust in the goodness of God. When you don't understand your circumstances, you have got to anchor yourself in the goodness of God. This is the temptation, isn't it? And this is the lie of Satan. This is the first lie Satan sowed into the first human couple. Basically, Satan said to Adam and Eve, God is not good. Remember, God created the worlds and it says, God saw that it was good. God made the animals, saw it was good. Saw the skies, saw that it was good. Created this, saw that it was good. Created man and woman, saw it was very good. God is good through and through. Intrinsically, there's no bad in him. He's all good. Satan bad, God good. I hate it when Satan gets no credit. God gets all the credit for all the good. Well, maybe not all the good, but he certainly gets credit for all the bad. Like insurance companies not insuring you for acts of God, like tragedy and tornadoes and earthquakes and ravaging destruction, acts of God. You know, people get sicknesses and diseases and they, 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 they look to God rather than putting their anger in the right place, which is against the enemy who Jesus said has come to kill, steal, and destroy. The Bible says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of God. No, of the devil. The Bible says that this is why the Son of God came to the earth, to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what he's doing. And that's what we are to do. So we need to recognize the source of evil and pain and suffering is Satan, not God. 
Otherwise, we will turn our backs on the only one who can help us. So, you say, well, I don't understand. Why would, how, why would a loving, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-loving, all-present God allow this to happen? The great question is the one we all wrestle with. You know, the Bible speaks into this, and some don't want to teach it because they're afraid that they'll hurt people's feelings, but I'd rather people get free, including myself. The Bible is very clear that sometimes it's sin. The Bible says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church, lay hands on them, anoint them with oil, the Lord will heal you, and if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. You can see very clearly from the Bible that many times sin is connected to uh, disease and tragedy. It opens up the door, the door to the enemy. Many times it's unbelief. The Bible says that Israel limited the Holy One of Israel. How can you limit God? Because he's given us the power to unleash heaven on earth or hell on earth through our fear or faith or unbelief. The Bible says that Jesus Christ could not, not would not, could not do many mighty miracles and he marveled at their unbelief. Our unbelief can stop the miraculous. There's also satanic opposition. Daniel, a mighty man of God in the Bible, fasting and praying. And for 21 days, he's seeking God with nothing, bupkis, no communication from God. He's a godly man. He's not in sin. He's not in unbelief. He's fasting. He's praying. 21 days later, finally, the angel Gabriel comes through. Oh, I finally made it. Man, God sent me the first day you started praying. But the principality, the demonic power we were singing about, the principality of Persia withstood me. They're in the heavens, man. They're duking it out. And finally, God has to send the, 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 uh, the uh, archangel Michael, the angel of war, to bust a hole in that front line so the high state Buckeyes can go to another national championship. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. That was weird. Yeah, that would be Michigan and Michigan State. <laughs> Maybe Nebraska. You never know, Daryl. So, so, so there, are, there are answers in the Bible for some of these things. I'm not afraid of these kind of answers. I want to know, is there something on my end that needs to change so that I can get free and free those that I love? But, Here's the point. Sometimes there's not an answer. Sometimes there's not an answer. So your exclamation point, I believe God, I love Jesus, exclamation point faith, turns into a question mark. That is the real test of faith. Am I going to believe that God is good anyway? Or am I going to allow my circumstances on this broken earth to redefine God for me? And Satan will say, oh, if you're going to do that, can I write a chapter? Let's do this together. Rather than being like Job, who had tragedies beyond anything anybody here is ever going to experience, his own wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? Let's get this over with. This is miserable. Look at you. She actually said that. Job responded, even if God were to kill me, I will still trust him. Man, I tell you, I want to go into heaven trusting God. This moment right here where you are being tempted to believe that God is not good or why would he let this happen literally is the, is the point, the precipice. It is the, 
It is the place where your spiritual walk is going to diverge this way into confusion and darkness. Or you're going to say, I'm going to humble myself and say, God, you are good, even if it doesn't look like it. And I'm going to trust you and worship you anyway. That choice takes you to higher levels than God that you can't get any other way. And listen, I'm not just preaching this out of some little cheap book somewhere. This is after 30 years of walking with the Lord and how many years my wife has. and The thing we're going through right now. Now, I was in a pretty bad place. Like the week after. I knew I would be in a bad place. When I decided I'm going for a miracle, I knew that if it didn't happen, I would be in a bad place. I knew that. Because I'm not going to half step. I'm going for it. I want to see my wife get healed from this thing. And I had all night prayer sessions while I was sitting in that chair in the room and pray over her and while she's sleeping and getting out my old faith books. And okay. So when I was in that place of anger, confusion, is this too real for you? Would you rather me just fake it and pretend? Just give you a couple of scriptures and then we go home? Or do you want a real life story from somebody supposed to, who's supposed to be leading by example? So I said to God, all right, I'm in a bad place, and this isn't good for my family. It's not good for my wife. It's not going to be good for the church. It's not good for me. I need you to help me to get to the place you need me to get to so that I can be helpful. So he woke me up in the middle of the night. The the day I prayed that prayer, that night he wakes me up at his favorite time, which is 3.30 in the morning. You guys know that? And... And he took me to the book of Elijah, took me to the book of First Kings, and in that book, um, that's right where Elijah had called fire down and destroyed eight hundred and killed eight hundred and fifty prophets of Satan, and, and turned Israel back to God. It was a crazy, crazy time. Great chapter, called fire down from heaven, and it came. It was awesome. Then he's running for his life the next day because he's afraid of a woman and he ends up in the desert wanting to commit suicide. He's asking God to kill him. So God, uh, an angel wakes him up, feeds him, and then he goes back to sleep and he's you know, praying prayers of suicide. And an angel wakes him up again and feeds him again and says, uh, eat because this journey is too long for you. Now, here's what I don't like. God told me, God gave me that passage before we even knew she was diagnosed with cancer. I was in my office one day praying, and he said, feed your soul because the journey is going to be too long for you. So he was preparing me for this journey. He told her before she knew it was cancer, gave her a word, plan for longevity. And she came out of the bathroom saying, God just spoke to me and said, plan for longevity. What do you think that means? And I thought, I don't like it. I don't like that. That doesn't sound good. Why would we need to plan for longevity? And why do I need to feed my soul? Because the journey is going to be long. So he saw this coming. Why didn't he stop it? I don't know. That's the question mark. But I'm going to tell you in a moment what to do with that. It's very important. Well, I'll just tell you right now because I may run out of time. And I'm just going to go back and forth and in and out of my notes. And it'll work. What do you do with that? Here's the critical thing you have to do. If you're going to get out of the valley of despair and confusion and anger and depression, you have got to turn your why into what. This is the critical transition point. As I'm asking, why didn't it happen? Why didn't she get healed? Where did I go wrong? See, that place of why God, the place of blaming yourself, potentially blaming God, that place is real. That's human. I'm not going to deny that that's where we end up because that's, that's where you end up. The question is not, I mean, you read the Psalms of David, a man after God's own heart. Man, he was just a whiny fuss. I mean, you read some of those Psalms like, wah, wah, call the wambulance. I mean, he's just, he's just, you know, God, where are you? 
are you? You're not answering my prayers. I'm all alone out here. And where have you been? And you don't care about me anymore. I mean, he's just, you read those Psalms. That's why we love David so much, right? That's why God loves David so much because he's so doggone honest. But at the end of every Psalm, he ends with a declaration of faith. But if you don't get to the place, if you don't get to the but, You're never going to get out of the ambulance. You're never going to get out of that place of despair. And it's going to turn into bitterness. And it's going to pollute everyone around you. And you're not going to lead anybody to the place of faith. You're going to, in fact, their misery is going to join your misery. And you're just going to get more and more miserable. And Satan is going to come to your pity party. Like he's going to be there every day with new fresh words for you about how God isn't good. And how this doesn't work. And prayer doesn't work. So why even try praying? And then nothing's going to happen. And then your self-fulfilled prophecy is going to continually be fulfilled because you're not praying anymore, because you're not believing anymore, because you don't believe prayer works anymore. And Satan has you right where he wants you, on the bench, ineffective. Do you know who the home run king was for decades and decades? The home run king in baseball. Do you know who the home run king was? Babe Ruth, right? Do you know who the strikeout king was? Babe Ruth. He struck out at least four times as much as he hit home runs. I mean, you think when he struck out his first time, ah, this hurts. Oh, you see, I've been practicing and swinging. And, ah. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine just dropping the bat and just saying, I quit. Forget it. I struck out. He struck out and he struck out and he struck out. You know why? Because he was swinging for the fences. He didn't want a single or a double. He wanted a home run every time he came up to the plate. Strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out. Boom! Out of the park. And he just continued to do it. Your prayers don't always get answered the way you want them to get answered. But don't sit on the bench. Don't stop praying. Some of them are going to connect and you're going to hit a home run and somebody's going to get healed. Somebody's going to get saved. Somebody's, somebody's going to get delivered. It might be you because you didn't stop praying. That's the way we win. We don't stop. Look what the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 27, 13 and 14. I would have lost heart. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Not in heaven. In the land of the living. I would have lost heart. This is David, by the way. King David. The one I was telling you about. That's so honest. He saw some tragedy. Pain and suffering. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness. Everybody say goodness. The goodness of the Lord. See, he he knew the goodness of God. He knew he was going to see the goodness of God eventually. I would have lost heart. That's what will happen to you. You will lose heart. If you don't believe that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Therefore, wait on the Lord. That means wait expectantly for God to do what God's going to do when God's going to do it. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, not weakness, not fear. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And that's what he did with me. You understand this isn't about me. I'm doing this for you, right? It just happens to be my story. I'm your pastor. So I'm telling you where I'm at and and the journey so you can uh, benefit from it, I hope. So he wakes me up in the middle of the night, and I was looking for the fire coming down from heaven, like we all want to, right? That, that, that's, that's the fun stuff. Didn't happen. So then what he told Elijah was this. He woke him up, said, the journey's too long for you. He goes 40 days to the mountain of God. He goes into a cave, and then God says, hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives him this little pity, pity speech, you know, I'm the only one that loves you anymore. And so then God causes the earthquake to go by and a uh, storm to go by and fire to go by. This this radical, supernatural. And and Elijah's watching all this. And it says the Lord was not in the storm or the wind or the fire. And then it says God whispered to 
Elijah in a still small voice. And then he asked Elijah the same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah didn't get it yet. He gave him the same pity party story again. I'm the only one that loves you. And so God ignored his pity speech and gave him his new assignment. This right here that I'm saying is the critical step between depression and despair and significance and success. He gave him his new assignment. He knew the only way he was going to get Elijah unstuck was by giving him something to do. To get him out of the why into the what would you like me to do today. That's what got him out of his pity party. What do you want me to do? I want you to anoint Jehu king. I want you to anoint Elisha. He's going to end up taking your place. He's going to be your, your protege and he's going to go on. And I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I've reserved 7,000 of the prophets who have not kissed Baal and they love me too. So can you cut out the pity party? So my assignment is to not look for God in the miraculous in this situation. I'm going to look for him in the miraculous all the time. But in this particular situation, his assignment to me is be with your wife. And I have. I've sat on the couch with her for days and days. And we've taken small walks together. And we've gone to hospital appointments together. And we've read the word of God together. And delegated most everything I can to this phenomenal staff we have in this church. And the church body has overwhelmed us with food. So I've been able to just hunker down and be with my bride. He said, be with your wife. Trust in my goodness and listen for my voice and just do what I say. That's my what. What is your what? What is your what? So the prayer didn't get answered. Your dream was shattered. The confusion and disappointment set in. Maybe some of you in this place right now have just flatlined in your walk with God. You're existing, but you're not living. You believe in God, but you're not praying. Well, I've already believed for big things and they didn't happen, so I don't want to feel that pain again. Then you're not living. Do you know in the Psalm 73... Uh, The psalmist says this, my foot had almost slipped. My foot had almost slipped. What did he mean by that? He said, I saw the wicked prospering and I saw the righteous suffering. Do you know that bad things happen to good people on this earth, on this planet? My mom and I were talking about why yesterday I threw out a possibility. I said, look, dad was an alcoholic. He was abusive. He had a disease. And God is not going to control people. This might help you, what I'm about to say. God has given us free will. That's why there's rapes. That's why there's murders. That's why there's violence. We turned on him out of free will. And chaos hit the planet. And it's broken. People are born with with, uh, deformities because we have sin in our genes and we're broken and we're fallen. And Satan is a destroyer. It's just nasty and it's hard and it's a mess. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble and trials and tribulations. But be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world. In other words, this isn't the end of the story. Hang on to me. We're going to make it through, and we're going to spend eternity together. Amen. So my, my dad, as loving as he was, he was also an alcoholic. He was abusive. And I'm sure he, God, through my mom's prayers, gave him a thousand opportunities to repent, and he just didn't. So our family fell apart. It wasn't God's fault. And so she was laying on her bed one time. We were, I don't know if you remember this, but a number of years ago, she's sitting on the edge of her bed and reading a book. And I came up to her bedroom. I was visiting her in Ohio. And I sat, I, I sat on her bed, and we had our talks like we had done for years, just talking all around the world. And she started crying, and she said, I feel so responsible for how the divorce and the shattering of our family has, has negatively affected you children. And I said to her, Mom, You have two preachers in the family. And she said, 
No, four, because you're sisters. Because I'm telling you what, they may not quote be ordained pastors, but I'm telling you what, you better watch out what you say around them, because you're going to get the gospel if you if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time. This mama, who saw her family shattered and tattered, her dreams destroyed, have children who all love Jesus with all their hearts. It took, it took 20 years, and guess what? Well, I just, I mean, I could, I, we could keep talking on this about another hour. I'm halfway through my message. I'm not going to. One of the things that turned my dad was when my when his firstborn son, my older brother, died because he was out partying with a friend and his friend and he were playing chicken with a car and his best friend came at him with the car but it was on gravel so when he hit the brakes the car didn't stop and he ran my brother over. So um, my brother died on the operating table because the hospital didn't have his type of blood. So my next oldest brother cursed God and tried to go to hell as fast as he could for the next four years, grand theft auto, breaking enterings. I mean, he was just really trying. He was so mad at God, he decided, I'm just going to be as bad as I possibly can. My dad became an atheist. He went to the funeral, and after the, after the, the funeral was over, my brother was in the casket, and my dad climbed into the casket and asked God to change his life and raise my brother from the dead and take his life, as any dad would think of doing, but my dad was radical enough to actually try it. Um, and it didn't happen. He actually thought it would happen. And so he decided there wasn't a God. He became an atheist for 25 years. Um, so I can't, I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but um, yeah, how's it in? We'll do that. Well, my dad finally came back. He went into a, uh, he wanted to uh, AA. He wanted to uh, a rehab, and he got help. And I'll tell you, one of the days I, I'll never forget. My mom was just saying this the other day, when we're in a vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm just doing this. I'm worshiping. Now, you remember when I used to pray for my dad's salvation? I would literally say this: God, I'm asking to save my dad, but I know it's not going to happen because he's so prideful. And so bitter. But I'm praying because I know it's the right thing to do. So, that's a pretty pathetic prayer, wasn't it? But it's honest. He likes that. He likes honesty. So I'm worshiping God like this, and I look next to me, and there's my dad. Yeah. Worshiping God like this. Huh? I'll never forget it. I know that good is going to come out of this cancer that has hit our family. Good's already coming out of it, and there's some good already coming out of it. It's going to continue. And then when it's all said and done, we look back on this a number of years from now, we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I'm not going to allow Satan to steal my testimony, my joy, my faith, and my God, because I know he's good and Satan's bad. I pray the same thing for you. Maybe some of you have been sidelined out of disappointment. Turn the tables on the enemy and say, I'm going to worship him anyway. Jerry, can you go on up there with the band, would you? Now, I'm going, to turn, I'm going to turn the tables on the enemy, and I'm going to worship him anyway. When you do that, that is the ultimate humility, because you're saying to God, you are God, I am not. You're the potter, and I'm the clay. I humble myself and say, even though I don't understand this, and it's really painful, and I'm mad at you, I'm going to worship you anyway. I'm telling you, think about Paul and Silas in prison, just trying to preach the gospel, and they get beaten and whipped and thrown into prison. And Paul in the midnight decided, I'm just going to sing hymns to God. And God saw that faith, saw him praising him in the midst of his darkness, shook that prison, and the Philippian church was birthed. Do you think that the Philippian church appreciates the fact that Paul decided to praise God rather than curse God? And listen, this is so important. 2,000 years later, 
we benefit from the letter Paul wrote to the Philippian church. It's called the book of Philippians in the New Testament. In fact, we benefit from the entire New Testament, which Paul wrote about two-thirds of. And Paul, the guy who wrote, and I want to read this to you, and then we're going to close. So much more good stuff in here I wish I had time to talk about today. But I think you've heard enough. I think you've had enough. The guy who wrote, and we know, these little bracelets that my family wear, Roman 8, 28. And we know, we know, Paul wrote this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, you and I might be tempted to say, well, you don't understand my situation. Let me read you. Paul's situation, the guy who penned those words, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose. Maybe not in the morning, but it's going to happen. The guy who penned those words also wrote this about his life. In 2 Corinthians 11.23, it says this. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled as many long, on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I faced danger in the cities, in the desert, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered and cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of all the concern for the churches. That's the guy... Who said, and we know all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. I pray you can just shake off the disappointment and discouragement this morning. I pray that you can stand and worship him anyway. It will torment the devil and it will honor God. And God is going to rush in to your praise, to your thanksgiving, to your faith. He's going to rush in and he is going to begin to cause all things to begin working together for your good because He is good. Can I hear an amen? So let's all stand. And I'm going to ask that we end today singing this song. This song was penned by a worship leader who went to the hospital in emergency with his child who they didn't know was going to live or die. He was in despair. He was helpless. He couldn't do anything. So he went home from the hospital, left his child, his baby in the hospital, not knowing that the baby was going to live or die. And he wrote this song that we all love to sing. And God loves it too. Let's sing this song together. Blessed be your name, the land that is plentiful, streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name, found in the desert place, who walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name, 
John 15, which is, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me will bear much fruit. And in that middle of the night, when my family's asleep and the house was quiet, it was just me and Jesus, he drew me so close to him again. And the friendship that he and I began over 30 years ago was renewed deep, deep, deep. And I knew that it's going to be okay. No matter what happens externally, as long as Jesus and I have this friendship, it's going to be okay. Some of you may not have that today. Some of you may need to have that renewed. Because that is the eternal thing. Your friendship with Jesus. That is what has caused my joy to be restored. If you don't know that today, I'm going to ask you. invite Jesus Christ into your heart right now, right where you're standing. If you've never asked Jesus into your life before, do it right now, right where you are. Just give him the invitation. He's going to come right into your heart. Just say, Jesus, I am asking you into my heart right now for the forgiveness of my sins. I need to know that I'm right with God. I need to have a relationship with you. I need my sins forgiven. Nobody can get you right with God but Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. And maybe you're standing there right now and you've got cold in your heart to Jesus for a plethora of reasons. I don't know what it is, but He does. Right now where you are, you need to renew your friendship with Jesus. Would you do that right now where you're standing there? Say, Jesus, I'm laying down my pride. I'm laying down my anger. I'm laying down my sin and rationalization. And I'm asking you right now to renew my friendship with you. You do that right now in this moment. I'm renewing my friendship with Jesus right now. I need to hear his voice again. Jesus, I pray throughout this week that you will restore the joy of your people. 
through the sufferings of this life, sadness and sorrow, pain and confusion, despair has filled the hearts and minds of some of your people. Anger, we, I ask you, Jesus, this week, our shepherd of our hearts and our souls, touch us deeply, restore our joy, restore our faith. dark and dying world, your people, people of faith, in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said amen, and amen, and amen. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come down front. We're going to pray for the sick, because we believe in miracles. If you need to give Jesus your life for the first time, you come down, we're going to pray for your salvation. If you need to renew your life with Christ, come down front and renew your friendship with Jesus before you walk out those doors. Close the door on the enemy. Open them to God. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I praise you in the